You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. Today, we'll be talking about the war in space, our special segment on the military's involvement in spaceflight. So, Gigan, there's always the question of, you know, why we went to the moon. And, you know, you Google search it. And as you shared earlier before recording, you get all sorts of answers. But let's get right to the to the bone of the situation of really why we went to space. And it, and it predates John Kennedy's, President John Kennedy's speech. Yeah, quite a bit, actually. The origins of the space race can really be found in a little document probably barely anyone's ever heard of called NSC 162-2, which was a policy paper that the National Security Council put together in October of 1953 that more or less outlined the fundamental problem the United States was facing when dealing with the Soviets in the Cold War, which, in short, the Soviets had a, had a four million man army, we had a million plus, give or take. And the general idea was for the only way for the United States to really deter the Soviets from just rolling over Western Europe was a policy of massive retaliation. And this ended up forming the basis of what we now know today as MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction, and started the United States' strategic nuclear buildup. The idea was, if we can't defeat a 4 million-man Soviet army in Eastern Europe, then we had to radically build up our nuclear arsenal in order to be able to deter them. And that concept of massive retaliation drove pretty much every significant defense expenditure the United States faced for really the next 20 years. And the space race was the inevitable byproduct of that. The United States, you know, was essentially fighting a war on the other side of the world. And the best way to initiate a massive retaliatory strike is if it happens all at once, ideally with no possible way for anyone to stop that. And that meant rockets and that meant space. And that led to everything from the development of the Vanguard project that put the first American satellite into space, it led to everything the Soviets ultimately did to try to counter that with their own space program. And this was ultimately the starting gun for the entire space race. So from that initial report, the United States started to run into a couple of fairly obvious challenges. One, our rockets were not of the highest quality in the 1950s. We had the beginnings of a spy satellite program, but it was fairly rudimentary. If you ever want to you know, learn about something fun one of these days, we'll actually tell some stories about how the first spy satellites worked. In short, it's really just asking yourself the question, how do you get film from space in a time before the digital camera? <laughs> so, and they were not able to negotiate through clouds. There was a lot of very practical hurdles. And all of these challenges ended up being something that contributed heavily towards the logic behind humanity's race to the moon. So we're going to be covering quite a bit about how all this stuff ultimately influenced uh, the space race. Yeah, and and look, it is true that you know the German and Nazi scientists were sort of divvied up between the U.S. and some of the other allies and and essentially the Soviet Union. But let's not forget the very first suborbital vehicle, the V two. It killed thousands of people in the UK. Killed some, I think, in uh, the Netherlands or Belgium and France. And I think there was even a, a, they even, I think the Nazis even launched an attack once on their own soil in Germany. And the very first flight, the very first ever suborbital flight 
by a man-created rocket was was actually June 20th, 1944. It's interesting because June 21st, 2004, was the first manned suborbital or privately funded manned orbital funded flight. Through, uh, through Spaceship One, yeah. Yeah, Spaceship One. So around this, this era of, you know, the late 40s, early 50s, there was a momentous, a massive investment by the Soviets and the United States into ramping up their uh, respective space programs because they realized that space was the strategic high ground. And it's not something that was just discovered in the 40s. People had been thinking about this earlier. It's just that the technology wasn't there. Right. The V-2 really proved that it was now possible to strike an enemy that you could not see. Uh, that you could that you didn't have to physically put a person in front of them to be able to deliver a incredibly devastating attack. So that rocket really was the origin of. I mean, it was the first. I mean, technically, it's considered, I think, an intermediate range ballistic missile, but it was the first ICBM in the sense that it proved that you could deliver a devastating payload to the other side of the planet using a rocket. And so from that, we saw pretty much every other major innovation of the space race go forward, and. Prior to the invention of NASA, the United States functionally had at least three space programs on its own soil, all administered by the U.S. Army, which is where uh, Dr. Von Braun uh, was based out of, the U.S. Army Ballistic uh, Missile Range. The U.S. Navy, which actually was operating probably the most peaceful program, ironically. And the U.S. Air Force, which was all of like 10 years old by the time Sputnik had actually gone into space. And these programs all sought to be able to develop new satellite, new technologies, uh, new rocket technologies. And then come 1957, the Soviets totally kick over the table with the first functioning satellite. And shortly thereafterwards, these people in the U.S. military started really thinking about what this meant for the Cold War. The United States is a funny country. Whenever we experience even the slightest hiccup in our national ego our response tends to be overwhelming and very panicky is the best way to think of it. And so while we think of the space race itself being this fairly logical evolution of satellite to human in orbit to rendezvous to moon landing, what really kicked all this off were three proposals that came out between 1958 and 1959 that I am astounded no one has talked about uh, in any kind of detail beforehand. Because these were the proposals that really outlined the defensive logic for going to the moon. So, Robert, you'd never heard of these before we actually started talking about this, right? Well, I had heard that there was a U.S. Air Force plan, but I was really unfamiliar with the Army study mm. that back in 1959. And so the Army, back in March 1959, Lieutenant General Arthur Trudeau, he was a chief of research and development working with like Army ordnance. He was basically tasked, he asked Dr. Warner von Braun to appoint a man named Heinz Hermann, I'm probably screwing up the same curl, to head a project. It was a 90-day study to look at essentially an army, a manned army base on the moon. And in that 90 days, what they looked at, they were looking at all the issues, how they would get equipment to orbit, how they would construct, where they would live, the suits talking about they were going to design special weapons for them to use. It was incredibly detailed for what they had to do in this 90-day study. They determined, and this is at the time, that they would need 75 Saturn II rockets. 
and they were going to transport 245 tons of material to the lunar outpost. And then later, there would be an additional 64 Saturn launch launches for other, you know, logistics, you know, food, water, etc. I mean, freaking, this is just mind blowing. They had a, how are they going to get power there? Nuclear reactors. They were going to use two of them, which were allowed. You can put nuclear weapons in space, but you could use nuclear reactors for energy. And they even realized that the long-term plan would have to be around probably solar. Which was a technology that had existed for about five minutes by the time this report had been written. It's just, this story is just so amazing. I mean, I, I, Keegan, I think I sent you a text, but I was thinking, gosh, I could see this as a, a video series, sort of like Man, Man in High Castle, but as if, you know, the U.S. Army had gone ahead and implemented this, this base. Now, they later realized it was going to be very expensive. I think they would have to invest about $700 million, which was a hell of a lot of money at that time yeah. per year to sort of... Uh, uh, to get this going. Yeah, the, the the specific project was killed before NASA was even invented. And when all when the US space program was consolidated into a single civilian agency rather than, than three defensive ones, the logic behind Horizon was still moral was still very much in people's minds. It's worth remembering that, you know, that a lot of the original staff of NASA, I mean, you'd have to really struggle to find someone in NASA in the early days who did not have some history with the military prior to getting there. So so this logic was very much ingrained in everyone's minds. So let's touch on why a base, whether it was robotic or manned on the moon, was what they realized the strategic importance back in the 1950s. And it's really, it's important to understand today. Right. Now, there were kind of three main goals between not just Project Horizon, but the Air Force's Lunex program. And Project A-119, which was this absolutely bonkers idea of actually launching an ICBM to the moon, specifically to detonate a nuclear warhead on the lunar surface. That one we're not going to get into a whole lot of detail today. We're focusing mainly on the manned side. But they all operated from trying to solve three basic problems. Number one was one that you could argue was purely a morale issue, which was the idea that going to the moon would definitively prove the superiority of American technology to the Soviet Union. Now, to the layman, that sounds like basically an ego-boosting contest. But for the military, what that really means is proving that we have the rocket technology that is advanced enough to be able to move a tiny little craft from the surface of the Earth all the way to a designated spot something like 300,000 miles away. Now, why we might think of this as purely an act of propaganda, what it really meant was showing the Soviets that, hey, if we can put a man on the surface of the moon, we can put a nuclear warhead on your doorstep. Demonstrating the effectiveness and precision of nuclear weapons was something that was seen as being absolutely critical to U.S. deterrence policy during the Cold War. Number two was a pretty was a much more cut and dry one. The United States pretty much had confirmed in, by the 1950s that our spy satellites kind of sucked. And there was no clear way anyone could see to get around the problem that you had to physically pick up a roll of film that had to be dropped from a tin can that you launched into space, and therefore meaning you'd have to launch them fairly regularly. So spy satellites didn't seem practical, and the only solution anyone could think of was that you'd have to essentially have permanent manned observation. So Project Horizon and Lunex both more or less outlined that the moon would be, be an ideal location for moon-based surveillance of the Earth, along with uh, serving purposes for communications and relay. 
So it was seen as being a manned stopgap to a lot of the technologies we take take advantage of today. Right. There was possibility of being able to know just what the full extent of Soviet space capabilities were, being able to possibly have a degree of early warning to protection. But the idea was that you could have a physical person on hand who could who could have line of sight onto a target and be able to negotiate around little things like clouds, which spy satellites were kind of bad at handling when they were first put into service. So that those are the first two big problems that were, you know, immediately seen. The third is one that's a little bit more esoteric. And that was that the United States by this point had much like the Soviet union figured out that whoever controls space controls the ultimate high ground, whoever is able to establish a supremacy in space technology would be able to be in a far more advantageous position terrestrially. So that, you know, to, at the time, this was thought more in terms of just being able to improve the basic principles that went into that massive retaliation plan. Today, it ultimately led to things like GPS, orbital telecommunication satellites, and of course, spy satellites. So all of this was in service of being able to create what the United States saw as a national security imperative of a project. And ultimately, all those goals were being pursued to one form or another, even after these programs had fallen away. Right. They had obviously very little, you know, hard data on how lunar soil could be used and everything. But the, you know, the general assumption was that if the moon was anything like Earth, in theory, you could make use of what was, you know, found available on that to be able to build while you're out there. So indigenous resource utilization was something they were thinking about right at the beginning. And it is worth noting that while this was a military-focused logic to solve this problem, the military was not unsympathetic or not or even disinterested in the idea of the of what scientific research could be gained on the surface of the moon. That's mentioned in both Lunex and Project Horizon as something that could be able to inform them more about how the development of the Earth and would be able to be a overall fairly empowering thing for humanity to have access to. Well, they tend to cover two completely different, you know, ideas on what you want to do when you actually get there. For the government, I'd say that the proposals from Project Horizon are not completely antiquated. There is the idea that you can take full advantage of being able to observe potential bad actors in space if you have a permanent fixed position to be able to observe them from the surface of the moon. It likely would be far more automated than what Horizon originally outlined. But I think the basic idea of being able to use the moon as a surveillance platform is not completely nonsensical, even with modern technology. I think it's something that the military would be quite interested in going forward. Right now, they're still having kind of the same problem. I mean, you we, we talked, you just outlined, what was it, 60 plus launches was going to be necessary to be able to build this thing in the first place. So even right where we sit right now, there is no vehicle available to make such a, you know, base possible. But if something like, say, Starship starts flying and meets the cost requirements that it's outlined, you could conceivably see, you know, at a future point, the military be interested in that and using the moon as a space base. As for the private sector, that's a longer discussion we need to have in a different video. But for me, I see the moon very much the same way as probably the British saw the Indian Ocean trade route in the 15th century. It's very much a location where we can get access to a lot of resources that we could conceivably take advantage of that you would not be able to make much practical use of, say, on Mars or in the asteroid belt. Right. So... 
1970s start to roll around, and lo and behold, the greatest miracle of miracles is upon us, the digital camera. <laughs> and that that probably did more to kill the space race than any policy proposal or budget constraint. The moment the digital camera became a thing, it now became possible for a spy satellite to be remotely controlled and permanently stationed in Earth orbit. So the whole logic of Project Horizon but the technology available at the time now kind of went out the window. So it's worth remembering that well into during the space race, the air force was also operating a program of its own called the manned orbiting laboratory. It never got beyond a boilerplate late test, but the idea was to be able to put up a permanent space station in orbit to act as a manned spy satellite. And the Russians ended up building their own in the Almaz program, about three of them, uh, little baby space stations that were essentially human-operated satellites. So once the digital camera comes in, the Apollo program basically dies, and now the space shuttle is the only program that doesn't get put on the chopping block with what NASA wanted to do post-Apollo. And it was only declassified fairly recently that a big reason behind that was that the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office, an agency that wasn't even declassified itself until, I think, the 90s, So the National Reconnaissance Office, which was not even declassified until 1992, when the Cold War was long gone, was intimately involved along with the Air Force in the design of the space shuttle. So this was when NASA's mission started. Most people tend to agree that when the shuttle was being built, NASA's mission started to get a little muddled. It was no longer directly focused with expanding beyond Earth orbit. There was, and a big part of this was that NASA's more purely research-based endeavors were now behind it and a little and there was a practical side of the space shuttle program that kind of ran counter to a lot of what NASA was founded on. So the space shuttle has as far as we know about 11 top secret flights that it conducted. The flights themselves were not classified but the missions were. And Pretty much every single detail about them is we have no information on beyond very, very generalized press releases from NASA and a handful of information you can glean from DOD releases. But from what we have declassified information on going all the way way back to the 1970s, the space shuttle's design was heavily influenced by what was seen as national security priorities. Not necessarily the airframe or how it flew or anything like that, but really how much it could carry, and what it had to carry. So Parker Temple, who is a historian who served on the policy staff of the Secretary of the Air Force and later was with the the NRO's office within the CIA, was once quoted as saying that NRO requirements ultimately drove the space shuttle design. This vehicle is probably one of the most iconic images of space flight in the 20th century. And its reason for being was depending on who you are, either driven by or corrupted by a ultimately military goal. Now, we don't know what all those goals were, but apparently it was significant enough for 11 shuttle flights costing half a billion apiece to be driven by this objective. Well, that's the theory anyway. We're not asserting any... Yeah, we're not We're not asserting anything here, but it is generally held in defense circles that the Hubble is at least based on the KH-11 spy satellites, of which there's about a dozen, I think, in orbit right now. But from what we can tell, none of those were actually launched by the space shuttle itself. It's possible that that was the plan at some point, 
the space shuttle program has a lot of there were you know a lot of there was a plan next to it that ultimately got killed like the there was there is a large vertical assembly building and launch site at Vandenberg Air Force Base that you can see to this day that has been mothballed which was originally part of a plan to be able to launch the space shuttle out of an Air Force base in California the idea being to to be able to keep security entirely in house it it did land at uh, Vandenberg and Edwards a few times though but yeah right right Landed at Edwards a few times, though. So the involvement with the Air Force has been something that the space shuttle was always connected with. And this very much continued the military's role in spaceflight. But during the shuttle program, NASA and the Air Force and NRO kind of had a bit of a falling out, it looks like. The Air Force started to look more towards unmanned systems to be able to get what it wanted to to orbit, even including uh, older rockets like the Titan series, which were originally ICBMs used all the way back in the Gemini missions. So... The Air Force's involvement in the shuttle seems to stop around the end of the 1990s, along with NRO's operations with all that. But they ultimately were instrumental in the logic of its design. So all of these programs, going back from Horizon to the shuttle to today, drove some significant innovations from the military that are now staples of our economy. You know, space-based telecommunications is something that hardly anyone really ever thinks about, but that includes projects like the GPS network of which I don't think anyone can really imagine a world their world today uh, being able to function as it can without access to global positioning satellites. I'm one of them. I, I think I knew how to use a map for about five minutes when I was, when I was a teenager, when MapQuest was still relevant and the moment that we had the, and even that was ultimately driven by access to GPS networks. So we live in a world today that is the product of a military space race, essentially. And that is not to say that anything nefarious or black project-y was going on in all this, but that to think that we went into space and drove and spent all this money, money that most people tend to believe even today was not worth it. The fact that people think we did this all purely for the sake of scientific exploration or ego for ego's sake is kind of a short-sighted way to look at how countries ultimately are willing are willing to spend huge percentages of their national budget. Oh, right. We we skipped over a big one there. So, the integrated circuit is without question the most consequential piece of technology of the last 60 years. And it was originally created, well, partly by Texas Instruments because they for calculator purposes, but what ultimately drove a fairly sizable investment into it and its development was for missile guidance. The integrated circuit is as intimately connected to the history of the space race, to the arms race, and to the moon landing as any piece of technology out there. And it was driven for the for the original purposes of being able to deliver a nuclear warhead into the Soviet Union. So all of this is a lineage of technological development and defense expenditures going all the way back to one paper written in 1953 outlining the fact that if the United States wanted to stop the Soviets from rolling over Eastern Europe, I mean, rolling over Western Europe, they needed to be able to achieve some form of massive retaliation that did not involve the relative compared to the Soviet Union, small troop numbers we have. So we're looking at a legacy of technological development that stemmed from a military decision. Oh, yeah. Like we said earlier, you could argue that the integrated circuit both made the space race possible and ultimately killed it. The integrated circuit, you know, made it possible for humans to guide spacecraft all the way to the moon and ultimately led to the invention of the, of the digital camera that made the moon landing seem like something of an anachronism. So 
it has been an absolutely instrumental technology that has driven the space race. Oh yeah. And they were considered bar none, the most advanced computing pieces of technology, the most advanced pieces of computing technology of the time. And they were, you could argue the first actual compact computers. They were the size of a microwave, but uh, they were, they were the first time you could be able to cram that much computing power into a mobile platform. I, I'd like to hope so, is uh, all I can say about that. Moore's law is less of a law and more of an observation of a phenomenon involving the you know reduced size and increased power of computing technology. And most observations say that we have long since slipped Moore's law's leash, or rather Moore's law has stopped being applicable since... I think about 2015 or so was when the doubling every 18 months or whatever it was started to kind of fall away. We've now hit a point where the integrated circuit is the microchip is a form of mature technology. If you want a idea of where we probably stand in the development of the microchip, best way I could best comparison I can offer is where the internal combustion engine was at the end of the 1960s. So now we just need whatever the computer version is of the Concorde or the Cadillac Eldorado <laughs> before the next big thing that is probably in a government lab somewhere and barely anyone knows about comes along and takes the lead. Yeah, the whole point of the War in Space segment of this podcast, folks, has been for us to really try to communicate what the military's role in space what has been, continues to be, and will be going forward without putting on any kind of tinfoil hats. So we're looking forward to being able to go over this topic in greater detail in, coming, in the coming episodes, and we thank you for joining us. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, is coming out soon, and I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look. Thank you for listening to Brave New Space. This is Robert and Keegan. Join us next time on Brave New Space with special guest Megan Crawford as she talks about her new project, Space Fund, and how investors approach investing in space companies. Space.